Amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and I'm going to pray for us again, so please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that now we would observe both the dark valley of Calvary and that we would see the mountaintop of resurrection and triumph perhaps more clearly than previously in these next few minutes. I pray that you would make them clear to us by the power of your Spirit who illuminates your Word so that what is written on paper is something that we can truly understand with the eyes of faith. So I pray now, God, that you would give us the faith to believe and the eyes to see the horror and the beauty and the glory and the love of what happened on this weekend so many years ago. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this message, my plan is to do what I just prayed, which is to start at the bottom of the valley that we left in on Thursday evening, if you were here for our Good Friday, uh, excuse me, for our, our, our Calvary service on Thursday evening. And we're going to pick up there in the dark valley, and then we're going to make our way as the sermon progresses up the mountain of resurrection and hope and triumph and joy. But I don't want us to bypass the cross even now in this moment. In this passage we're going to look at today, Jesus is going to be repeatedly showing his disciples the scars on his wrists and on his feet. That's going to be the emphasis, and he's going to use those scars, those those wounds of love to comfort and to bring comfort to his fearful, doubting, grieving, in Thomas's case, flat, disbelieving hearts. And he is going to comfort us with those nail marks, and he is going to show us something of his love. On Thursday evening, we looked at those infamous words of Jesus on the cross that both Matthew and Mark record that come from the first verse of Psalm chapter 22. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sambachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want to read an excerpt from Charles Spurgeon from about 150 years ago. Listen to him describe these words of Jesus on the cross. Please please listen from his morning and evening. Quote, We here behold the Savior in the depth of his sorrows. No other place so well shows the griefs of Christ as Calvary, and no other moment at Calvary is so full of agony as that in which his cry rends the air, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At this moment, physical weakness was united with acute mental torture from the shame and ignominy through which he had to pass, and to make his grief culminate with emphasis, he suffered spiritual agony, surpassing all expression, resulting from the departure of his father's presence. This was the black midnight of his horror. Then it was that he descended the abyss of suffering. No man can enter into the full meaning of these words. And he adds, Some of us think at times we could cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are seasons when the brightness of our Father's smile is eclipsed by clouds and darkness. But let us remember that God never does really forsake us. 
It is only a seeming forsaking with us. But in Christ's case, it was a real forsaking. We grieve at a little withdrawing of our Father's love, but the real turning away of God's face from His Son, who shall calculate how deep the agony which it caused Him. I'm continuing briefly. He says, in our case, our cry is often dictated by unbelief. In His case, it was the utterance of a dreadful fact, for God had really turned away from Him for a season. Oh, he says, poor distressed soul who once lived in the sunshine of God's face, are you now in darkness? Remember that he not only was really forsaken, but truly stood in your place. God in the clouds is as much our God as, was, as when he shines forth in the luster of his grace. But since even the thought that he has forsaken us gives us agony, what must the woe of the Savior have been when he exclaimed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus died, abandoned by his father, he was truly standing in the place of sinners, and he was receiving in himself the penalty for sin. Jesus was buried, as we just read at the beginning of the service, by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And now I want to read the beginning of the Easter account, John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him. And went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Much could be said, sermons could be preached on those verses, but I'm not going to focus here. I just want to mention verse 17. Look at the middle of that verse. Jesus says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This is astonishing. Because of what Jesus has accomplished, he can say, the same Father that I have in heaven, if you will trust in me, is the same Father you have in heaven. 
My God is your God. My father, Jesus says, is your father. This nearly sounds blasphemous, yet it is true. Because of the finished work of Jesus, we can know God not as a distant judge, not as someone up there, the man upstairs, the, this grandfatherly figure in the sky who we occasionally think about or occasionally pray to. No, he is now our heavenly father because of what Christ has just accomplished. And not even John and Peter have a clue really what's going on. Remember, John was the disciple, I think, running ahead of Peter to the tomb, the one Jesus loves. They stoop in, they see the grave clothes. John even seems to believe he's risen, but he does not yet understand what this has to do with Scripture. He does not yet understand how this fulfills Scripture. They did not see this coming, despite the fact that Jesus had told them repeatedly. Remember in Mark's Gospel, chapter what nine, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, almost every chapter, what does Jesus keep saying? We're on our way to Jerusalem. Jesus was leading the way. The disciples were staying back a little bit behind Jesus in fear, knowing what the consequences could be. Going to Jerusalem was a hotbed of contention against Jesus. Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem. He'll be delivered into the hands of sinners. They will beat him. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will crucify him. And on the third day, he will rise. And they had no idea what he was saying. They thought it was a metaphor. They thought it was symbolism. No, Jesus says, I'm speaking plainly, but they just did not get it yet. And I understand, I probably would not have gotten it myself in those days. But now the events are unfolding, and it seems too good to be true. So today's passage will pick up, and I'll just read it and go well, comment as we move through it. Uh, we will start now in verse 19. John 20, verse 19. So this is on Sunday night. This is uh, resurrection evening, Easter evening. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. I'm just going to stop here. The disciples are not, they didn't wake up on Easter morning excited. They did not go to bed on Saturday evening excited. They went to bed crushed by grief. Remember Luke 24? Cleopas and another disciple are walking the seven miles to the west from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And as they are walking there, remember, Jesus comes alongside. They don't recognize him. They don't know it's him. And what do they say? There was a prophet named Jesus, mighty in word and deed. We thought he was the one to redeem Israel. But he has died, and it's been three days since his death. Clearly, he's not the Messiah. That's their implication. That's clearly what they're saying when they say this to Jesus. And Jesus rebukes them. They don't know it's Jesus, remember? But as he walks with them, as the sun is beginning to go down on their way to Emmaus, Jesus rebuked them. He said, oh, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, all the Hebrew scriptures, all of the Old Testament, he began to unpack to them all the things taught about the Messiah, about himself. And as they walked along the way, they, the disciples later said, did not our hearts burn within us as he unpacked the scriptures to us? And they sat down at a home in Emmaus. The sun had just begun to set. It was too dangerous and late now for travel. They urged Jesus to stay with them. Again, not knowing yet who he is, they sit down for dinner. Jesus breaks bread. And when he breaks bread and says the blessing, the prayer, it has all the characteristics of the way Jesus broke bread and prayed before a meal. They've seen this a hundred times. 
And as soon as he breaks the bread and blesses it, they immediately recognize it's Jesus. And he, va- he disappears from their sight. He, he's gone. He vanishes from their sight in that moment. And the disciples say, I don't care if it's late. I don't care if it's dangerous. We are running the seven miles back to Jerusalem where we just came from right now because we've got good news, unbelievable news to tell. And when they burst into the upper room where the other disciples are, they can't even get the words out first. The other disciples get the words out ahead of them. We've seen the Lord. So have we. It's <laughs> an amazing moment. Wait, you've seen him, we've seen him. And they have this amazing moment. They've all seen Jesus that day in different places and in different contexts. And it seems too good to be true. But you understand, until that moment, joy was the last emotion. It was fear. It was grief. It was despair. We thought he was the one to redeem Israel. But it's been three days since his death. Who was he? They are afraid. Of course they're afraid. These are the 12 men, minus Judas, who've been most closely following Jesus, their Messiah. They're recognizable. The the servant girl says, I I think I recognize you, Peter. Weren't you in the garden with him? I've never seen the man, remember, on that that Friday early morning. They are terrified because their leader was just crucified by the Romans, and now guess who's next? They're next. I mean, very likely, right? At any moment, the police essentially could kick in the door. The, 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 the Roman soldiers could come and come through the door if they found them, and each of them, all of them, any of them could be crucified. They are marked by terror. They are afraid. You have to ask, what made them go from understandably terrified followers of a crucified Savior to 50 days later, standing up in front of thousands of Jewish people, including those who crucified Jesus at Pentecost, and boldly proclaiming that he'd risen from the dead, not a, a few miles from where the empty tomb sat, Something dramatic had to have happened in those days. What in the world could explain this dramatic transformation? Well, let's see right here. Middle of verse 19. The disciples were there for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. I want to read, you don't have to turn here, Isaiah 53 is probably familiar to many of you, a prophecy of Jesus' death by substitution, written 700 years before Jesus was born. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 5. Before I read this, did you hear what Jesus just did in that text? Twice he said, peace to you, and then in the middle, what did he do? He showed them the wounds on his hands and his side. Peace to you, here are my wounds, and then again, peace to you. Now, that's strange. What what is he doing? Why is he doing that? Isaiah 53, verse 5, I think may hold part of the answer, maybe the whole answer. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Is that not amazing? The piercing of the Messiah and the wounds of the Messiah bring us peace. What does Jesus do when he shows up? According to Isaiah, in total alignment to Isaiah 53, verse 5, he says, peace to you, here are my wounds where I was pierced to provide you peace. And then again, he says, peace to you. See, you know, shalom, peace to you. And in the Greek, it's a similar kind of thing. Uh, you, you say peace to you. It's a common greeting. Three times in John chapter 20, Jesus says peace to you. Now, 
One commentator pointed out, John doesn't have a lot of space to waste words in his gospel. He's only including what's vital. Why would he include three times a very common Jewish greeting, peace to you? Why would he include that? I mean, there's a lot of things we'd like to know that Jesus said. Why does he have three times, peace to you, peace to you, peace to you? The answer is, here's a guess. My guess is this. When the disciples later were thinking about this day and no doubt talking about it, I mean, you all have memories in your family or memories that you have that are special and you tell them over and over, right? When your family gets together, you tell the same stories. You think this story was told a few hundred times by the disciples in the coming years? I mean, they told this not just when they're preaching, just whenever they're together. I, how could you go 24 hours without re-mentioning the fact that you met the risen Jesus and saw his wounds? So they're telling this story over and over. And I, I, just a speculation, I can't prove this. I bet as they told this story over and over, that greeting, peace to you, peace to you, peace to you, started taking on more theological content the more they thought about it. What was just a common greeting was suddenly freighted with theological import. He means it really. Objective and subjective peace comes to you through the brutal, nail-scarred wounds of Jesus' wrist, feet, and side. See, this is the irony of the cross. A brutal and horrific death creates peace like a river in your life. That's amazing. A horrific, brutal, agonizing death. You, you know this. The word excruciating was invented in the Latin excruciatus. Uh, it was invented by the Romans to explain the pain of crucifixion. Ex means out of, like exit or exodus. Ex means out of. Cruci means crucifixion or cross. The word excruciating literally is a compound word that means the pain that comes out of crucifixion. So the word excruciating was invented because crucifixion was so beyond normal pain that they had to come up with a new term to describe what cannot be otherwise described. It's the pain from the cross. How could an excruciating, agonizing death like Jesus' death lead to peace be to you? And the answer, you know, it's right here. Our sins were being dealt with on the cross and the brutal punishment we deserve was being absorbed by another, by a substitute, so that we could have peace with God objectively and subjectively, experientially, we can have peace of God in our heart and in our lives. I mean, let us never grow weary of the fact that there were, there were different ways to crucify people. One way that they crucified people was they used ropes. A crucified person would be tied to a cross, and they would stay there for three days, four days, die of asphyxiation perhaps, or dehydration. They did not always use nails. Um, Jesus had nails uh, driven through his wrists and through his ankles. Now, I, I, I want you just to stop. I'm not going to go long on this, but I, but I don't want you to ignore this. In Roman crucifixion, I think it's been essentially proven at this point that the Greek word hand incorporates more than just your physical hand. It includes your forearm. And when it says that he showed the marks on his hand, almost certainly the nail went through the two bones right here in your wrist. Otherwise, it could not hold. So the nail would have gone right here. And the median nerve, which is a primary nerve that runs to your hand, would be... Uh, would be, would be pinched in a way that would be hard to describe. Jesus had nails driven through his body. And upon death, he had a spear 
John mentions blood and water coming out. Do you remember that? Blood and water. Now, I am not a medical person. There are many in this room who know far, far more about the medical side. But I have read a little bit from medical doctors on this point. So I think this is accurate. Many people have spoken of it. John, as an eyewitness, saw clearly blood and water separated come out of the side of Jesus, which is a strange occurrence. And medical doctors say that most likely the explanation is this. If the spear would have gone without breaking a bone, if the spear would have gone under the right rib cage and gone through the heart, if the heart had already stopped beating, there's something called the pericardium, that, a thin layer around the heart that can fill with fluid in these kinds of situations. And when the spear went through and if it punctured his heart, you would have both blood and a clear fluid like water pouring out separated. This is what happened to Jesus. And he did this because he loves sinners. Jesus then shows his hands and his feet and his side to his disciples, and they, are, they, they experience peace in this moment. Because listen, by his stripes we are healed. By his stripes we are healed. I heard a pastor one time say this. Isaiah 53.10 says, It pleased the Lord to crush him. He has caused his grief. Yahweh, God the Father, it pleased the Lord, God the Father, to crush him, the Messiah. It pleased the Lord to crush him. Uh, if you are ever tempted to doubt God's love for sinners like you and me, God so loved the world that he crushed his son in the place of sinners. His son was voluntary in this. This is not as people blasphemously sometimes call it cosmic child abuse. No. Jesus was a willing sacrifice. And he went like a lamb to the slaughter and did not open his mouth in order to receive that for us. Now let's look here at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Here's what Jesus is saying. Now that I have met you and I have shown you what I have done on the cross, you are being sent out to tell this to others. You know, I don't want to stretch this too far, but I do think there's something to this. They are gathered on a Sunday evening. They're gathered on a Sunday. The followers of Jesus are in a room together. They bring their fears their doubts, their anxieties, their grief, all together in the Sunday gathering. And what happens? Jesus makes himself known. He speaks words of truth and he shows the wounds of the cross to his followers. And what happens? They are overwhelmed by joy. They were glad when they saw the Lord and they're overwhelmed by peace in the presence of the Lord. And then what does he do? He commissions them to go out. And is that not what happens every single Sunday? We gather together. Do we bring our fears our anxieties? Do we bring our stress, our doubt, our skepticism, our sins, our foibles, our mistakes, our blatant sins? Do we bring them with us into this room? Yes, we do. We bring them together. And what do we need? We need to hear the voice of Jesus through his word. And we need to hear about the wounds of Jesus so that we can have joy and peace and to be reassured, God does not hold your failures yesterday against you because he held them against Jesus. Those sins are gone. If you turn from sin and trust in Jesus, those sins are gone. The sins that bother us in our conscience, if we will repent of them, they are no longer part of our life. They are no longer part of our future. They are taken 
away. Verse 24. One of my favorite parts of the resurrection appearances. Thomas. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now just give me a moment here. I want want to look at a few other passages in John. Turn with me to John chapter 11. Just a few pages to your left. John chapter 11. And here's why I'm doing this. Thomas is a disciple we don't hear from very often, do we? He's not quoted, to my knowledge, at all in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's only quoted in John, and uh, if I understand correctly, he's only quoted three times in the Gospel of John. So we only have three quotes from Thomas, to my knowledge, in in the New Testament. And I want to read all three because it starts to paint a picture of who this man was. And before I read them, let me say this. If John is only going to pick, John the author of the Gospel of John, if John is only going to pick three times for one of his friends, one of the disciples, to speak... My guess is the three examples are going to be somewhat representative of who Thomas is like, right? He's not going to pick, he's, I mean, I'm just assuming. He's going to pick three things that sort of give you a picture of what he's like. So let's look here. Uh, John chapter 11, verse 14. This is after Lazarus has just died. John 11, verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Verse 16. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I can't read that without smiling every time. I know it sounds depressing, but you get a a sense that Thomas saw saw the glass half empty at this particular moment. So Jesus goes, hey, let's go to Bethany. And he's he's clearly, um, I mean, if they had eyes to see, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. You you could get that idea, but Thomas doesn't see that. Thomas goes, okay, yeah, we'll go with you, Jesus. We'll all Get slaughtered with you. We'll all die with you. That sounds great. So Thomas has this very pessimistic, negative perspective. Look at John chapter 14, just a couple chapters over. John chapter 14. Now, my guess is every single person in this room has heard many times the verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's John 14, 6, and a precious and wonderful verse. But did you know that we would probably never have John 14, 6 in the Bible if it wasn't for Thomas? Because Jesus is responding to Thomas when he says that amazing statement. Let's see what Thomas said to get Jesus to say that famous verse. John 14, verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Don't you love? Do you, do you detect a pattern in Thomas right now? Does he tend to see things a little negatively? Okay, he, okay, we'll go with you, Lord. We're all going to die with you. He says, there, "Okay, yeah, we, we don't know the way. How can we know the way, Lord? Help us." So he just sounds panicky. He doesn't know. And then in a little bit, I will never believe Jesus rose from the dead. Are you getting a picture of Thomas from those three little samples? And let's keep reading. Uh, verse six. Jesus said to him, "I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father." except through me. So we have Thomas to thank for John 14, 6. Isn't that amazing? Thomas going, I don't understand what you're saying, Lord. And Jesus just says it clearly. I'm the way. If you want to know God, you must come through me. Now let's return to our main text, John 20. And let's review what we just saw. 
verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Wow. You know, we call him doubting Thomas. I think it's more fair to call him disbelieving Thomas. Now, let me say a word about doubt here. In the Bible, there are different kinds of doubt. There is a legitimate kind of doubt that's honestly just wanting help to better understand. And then there's kind of a scoffing, skeptical, I want nothing to do with this sort of doubt. You, you, know, you know the difference, right? You can, you can tell in a conversation when someone has honest questions about the Bible and they just want to know more and they, they're confused. My goodness, that's my favorite person to talk to probably on the planet. If someone says to you, don't you love those people when they say, listen, I want to know more about the Bible. I'm a little confused about it. Can you help me? Oh man, that is an open door and we should be so uh, just gracious and open to those. But there's another kind. The psalmist calls it the scoffer, right? He just says, Everything they say is just undermining and undermining, undermining. It's just, I don't want to hear it. Get that out of my face. I don't want to think about it. That's a different kind of doubt here. And Thomas is caught somewhere in the middle, isn't he? I'll just give you a quick example as an aside here. Two I often think of, of sinful doubt and then the kind that's just trying to get help. Remember the two, the two real quick ones. Gabriel at the Christmas story shows up twice. Remember, two different people. He shows up to uh, uh, John the Baptist's future father, Zechariah, and he says, your wife, even in your advanced age, you're going to get pregnant and have a son. And Zechariah, he's in the temple near the altar of incense, and he's standing in the middle of the temple, and he says, how could this be? I'm very old. (laughs) That's what he says. And the angel says, "Uh, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and you're not going to speak until the baby is born. And he says, uh, okay, he stops talking. And that's it. So he says, nine months, no talking, and then the baby is born, and then he starts talking again. So that was like, that, clearly there was sin in Zechariah. I mean, Zechariah was a righteous, godly man. But in that moment, it was a sinful act of unbelief. Whereas in the very later in that chapter, what happens? The angel shows up to this teenage girl, Mary. You're unmarried. You've never been with a man. You're going to get pregnant with the Messiah. And she says, basically, how can this be? But it's not out of unbelief. She says, how will this work? I, I, I'm not married. How will this work? And then she says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll have this child conceived. And she says, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be done to me as the Lord commands. So do you see the difference there between those two different reactions? Both of them want more information, but one of them is clearly a sinful skepticism. One of them is more open like Mary's was. Well, let me ask where you are today. Are you saying, I, I believe it? But I want more certainty. I want more conviction to believe it more. Then even pray before the service is over that the Lord would open your eyes and give you greater certainty and conviction of the truth of Christ's resurrection. Let me ask you this. Are you in the scoffer category? Now, you may not like that term. You might not say that's what describes you. But are you the kind of person where every time or almost every time Jesus is brought up in a conversation, you just want to change the subject? You just say, I, I, it makes me uncomfortable to talk about it. I don't know why. I just, can you please stop talking to me about biblical things? I don't want to talk about the gospel again. I don't want to talk about Jesus. L- let me ask you. Let me ask you. And I don't know why that might be. Maybe you've had bad experiences with Christians in the past. There are horrific stories of people who say that they're Christians and do terrible things. But I want to tell you something. 
Don't confuse the abusers of religion with Jesus himself. Don't confuse those who in the name of Jesus do terrible things with Jesus himself. Jesus himself was always having his greatest battles with who? The religious leaders who abused what they were doing in Israel at the time. And I would ask you to open your heart even now if you are skeptical about Jesus. I want you to consider him and to think about the freedom and joy that comes from a total offer of cleansing and forgiveness. The blood of Christ can cleanse you of all sin. What else is going to deal with your past? Resolutions to do better? That will not wipe away your past sins. Trying to make people forget doesn't make God forget. There's only one way for sin to be dealt with and done, and that's for it to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And the only way for your sins to be drowned in the depths of the sea is for you to, by faith, trust in Christ as a saving sacrifice for you in your place. Now, I want to close doing something just a little unusual because it's, it's long. I know reading things can be hard. I understand in the sermon, but I, I want to read an extended quote because I think this is a wonderful explanation of Thomas, and it comes from a book called, called Not By Sight by John Bloom. And, okay, I'll, I'll tell you, it's slightly fictionalized. He's trying to make up some of the details to fill in some, some of the gaps, but he tells you kind of his version of Thomas. And just listen to this, and then I will close us in prayer, and we will sing again. Okay, please, please listen. Jesus' death had been difficult and confusing for everyone. Having been welcomed into Jerusalem like a king, remember that was just last Sunday, Palm Sunday, He was dead before the week was over. And when the shepherd was struck, the sheep scattered. But they were gathered in a secret hideout in Jerusalem. On Sunday, that's this morning, things took a weird twist. It began with Mary Magdalene insisting that she had seen Jesus alive that morning. True, Jesus' body disappearing was admittedly strange. But still, everyone knew that Jesus had really died. No one could really believe Mary's claim except perhaps John. Then later in the day, Peter announced that he had seen Jesus alive. This troubled Thomas, but he figured he could cut Peter some slack after denying Jesus publicly on Friday morning. Who could blame Peter for apparently desperately wishing it to be true? He just needed some time. But then Cleopas burst into the house Sunday night, claiming that he had walked, walked with Jesus to Emmaus that afternoon. What Thomas found particularly hard to believe was that Cleopas and his friend hadn't recognized Jesus the entire time until during dinner when, poof, Jesus just disappeared. Well, this excited everyone else, but Thomas only felt agitated. He desperately missed Jesus too, but he wasn't going to let grief make him believe bizarre things. Jesus was dead. Yet he didn't feel like dousing everyone's unreal hope with a wet blanket of reality. They weren't ready to hear it anyway. Thomas decided he needed to clear his head with a walk by himself. So after whispering a discreet excuse to Nathaniel, he managed to slip outside without notice. After being very careful not to betray the hideout, he covered his head and started down an empty street. The quiet was refreshing, but the walk wasn't as helpful as he had hoped. The Jesus sightings disturbed him, especially because the witnesses were credible. He knew them. They certainly weren't liars. They weren't unstable. None of them were given to delusions. Peter particularly was a rock of reason. Then a rush of memories from the past three years flowed through Thomas's mind. He had seen so many things that would have been unbelievable if he hadn't seen them. Most haunting right now was Lazarus. And Jesus had seemed to know that he was going to die in Jerusalem. He had said those strange things about death and resurrection. Suddenly, Thomas realized that he was arguing with himself. His agitation really wasn't over his friend's failures to face the facts. The facts, in fact, were now confusing. He was agitated because part of him actually believed Jesus was alive again. That's what Jesus had meant, wasn't it? But this frustration, this frustrated the skeptic in him, 
who took pride in being a man of common sense. A resurrection just seemed too incredible to be true. Now, I, I love this next section. The more he thought, the less sure he became. Do you know skeptics like this? The more they consider the resurrection, the more they start thinking, you know, maybe there's something to this. No one knew where Jesus' body was. Those who claimed to have seen him were people he trusted. It could make sense of certain prophecies. Could it be? Show me the body, his skeptic side shouted. At least Lazarus could be seen and touched in Bethany by any doubter. So if Jesus really was alive, why this hide-and-seek game? Wouldn't he just show himself to them all? He'd believe Jesus was alive when he saw him alive. When Thomas returned to the house, four of his friends pounced on him. We have seen the Lord, Thomas. It's all true. He was just with us. Where were you? Thomas felt a surge of shocked unbelief. Then he felt regret for having left. Then he felt isolated. He was now the only one who had not seen Jesus. So in self-pity-fueled anger, he blurted out with more conviction than he felt, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Most of his friends were dismayed, but Peter just watched him. The following eight days were long and lonely for Thomas. His friends were gracious. No one debated him. It was, in fact, their calm confidence in Jesus' resurrection that aggravated Thomas's growing conviction that he was wrong. Outside, he tried to maintain an appearance of resolute intellectual skepticism, but inside he was wrestling and melting and wanting more than anything else to see Jesus too. And then it happened. Thomas was staring at the floor, sinking again under the fear that maybe Jesus had rejected him because of his stubborn unbelief. If so, he knew he deserved it. Then someone gasped. He looked up and his heart leaped into his throat. Jesus was standing across the room looking at him. Peace be with you. Thomas could barely breathe. Jesus spoke to him. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. All objections and resistance in Thomas evaporated and in tears of repentance, relief, and worship, Thomas dropped on his knees before Jesus and exclaimed, my Lord and my God. Be patient and gracious with the skeptics in your life. Don't assume their outward confidence accurately reflects their inward condition. Keep praying for them and share what seems helpful when it seems helpful. Keep confidently and humbly following Jesus and trust His timing. He knows best how and when to reveal Himself to them. Let me close our text and then we'll pray. Verse 28 again. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Do you have life in His name? Do you know that you have life in the name of Jesus. If not, ask even right now for the Lord to open your eyes and to give it to you. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we bring grief of different kinds, doubt of various kinds. We bring fears, sins, unbelief, 
Sometimes we want to call out like the father in Mark, I believe, help my unbelief, which is a prayer you love to answer. God, I pray wherever we are at, I'm sure in this room there are people all over the spectrum of where they're at in their relationship with you. God, I pray that right now all of us would move toward Christ in repentance and faith, that we would have life, what is truly life. Nothing else in this world can give us life. We try so many things and they leave us empty. They leave us frustrated, depressed, discouraged, futile. We chase after things and we get them and they don't ever satisfy. But belief in Christ leads to life in his name. And I ask God right now, if anyone within the sound of my voice does not have life in the name of Jesus, that even right now, you would regenerate their heart, you'd grant the faith to believe, bring true conviction and repentance of sin, a turning to Jesus, a full and free forgiveness, and that you would give life and life abundant in the name of Jesus. Be at work doing that even as we sing right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.